Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. If you could take your seats, please. We'll get a move on. My name is David Goodman. I'm the Academic Director of the China Studies Centre. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome you here tonight to hear uh, the first lecture at the University of Sydney by the new Director of the China Studies Centre, Professor Kerry Brown. Um, when we were setting the China Studies Centre up, I always hoped that we would get a dour, uh, managerial type who never made us laugh. Unfortunately, we got Kerry instead. And I'm sure when you've heard him speak today, you will agree with me that he is one of the most lively and interpretive voices uh, looking at contemporary China politics. Uh, without further ado, Kerry Brown. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, and thanks very much, everyone, for coming here. It's great to see you. I've been here two months, and um, my mind is still relatively uncontaminated by knowledge. Uh, and so I want to share some of that uncontamination with you, or discontamination with you, tonight. Um, the China Studies Centre, I mean, I think aims to reach out to as wide a community as possible, and has been doing so. And what I wanted to do this evening was to do a little bit of an experiment. Um, I think uh, we have talked and talked and talked about this transition uh, in China, the leadership transition from the fourth to the fifth generation um, at great length. And the wonderful thing about it, of course, is that absolutely no one knows anything. And this has become blindingly obvious as we have gone on. This gives anyone who comes to it a certain amount of freedom and so I have thought that I would use particular images over the last few months that have really struck me about this incredible story um, to try and make a little bit of sense. Uh, if we can't find sense through the front door, then I have tried to go a little bit through the back door. Um, what we're about to see will be the story of a man who died for love of money, uh, a leadership whose greatest attribute uh, was silence, and the three men who floated across the face of a mocking earth and the magical qualities of the number nine or seven. But first of all, I want to tell you about a stellar con trick. It's always good to start with a quote from Foucault, uh, because you really can't go wrong. Um, and this is something that struck me uh, years ago uh, when he talks about the creation of knowledge on how we know. In some remote corner of the universe, bathed in the fires of innumerable solar systems, there was once a planet where clever animals invented knowledge. That was the grandest and most mendacious minute of universal history. When we look at elite Chinese politics, we have to constantly ask ourselves questions about what do we know, how do we know it, and why don't we know things? And often we are inhibited by issues of fear, of the policing of particular forms of knowledge, of the ways in which we are, in fact, not only unable to know, but also not allowed to know. Leadership, as Yu Hua said in a wonderful book, China in Ten Words, is the most sensitive thing in contemporary China. That is interesting. In a world in which you can basically libel anyone, uh, in contemporary China you really can, um, you cannot talk about the leadership very easily. Of course, in Beijing, in Zhongnanhai, in the leadership compound, there is a strategy. They want you to be bored and only the ones that stay awake are going to really notice anything. The thing about boredom, however, is it does have a purpose. Andrei Tarkovsky, the great Russian director, said, first you look and you're interested, then you become bored. The ones that win are the ones that get through the boredom and things happen. Unfortunately, at the National People's Congress, things don't happen. This, these are our pictures from this year's National People's Congress. The strategy is working. And after all, these guys are the ones that even made it there. And so I think the idea is that in November, we will wake up magically after this incredible transition has gone through, and we will believe, we will be actually allowed to believe, that things are the same. It's not just us. Even at the top, they are bored. We have heard the stories about Jiang Zemin and his mendacious plots. He obviously needs to close his eyes to think of these plots. But in fact, this is very ironic. This is very strange. China is now a society in great ferment. Anyone who goes and has any engagement there, as all of you do, 
will know that this is a society undergoing incredible changes. It is a society which is trying to do something that has historically never really happened before, to become a developing country, but probably the world's largest economy. This is truly an immense change. And I always think it's the kind of little stories that show us the extraordinary uh, uniqueness and craziness of this society uh, as it is going through these immense changes. A few years ago, I think last year, actually a few months ago, there was the story of the floating Sichuan officials. One Friday afternoon, uh, a news release was made about three officials from, I think, Lingyi in uh, uh, Sichuan going to view a road. But as people looked at this picture, they found it very curious. It looks like these people are floating. Now, I believe, like everyone else, that the powers of party secretaries in provinces in China are very great. But even I wonder whether they can float. However, <coughs> they can also float on the moon. And they floated with the dear leader before he died of overwork on a train in, near Pyongyang. They even managed to float into another realm and another time. Uh, the story behind this uh, kind of management of news was that, uh, in fact, the propaganda department in this small uh, town felt that the original picture was not as interesting, and therefore they wanted to slightly manage it. But hilariously, they mismanaged it. And that kind of mismanagement, that kind of uh, involvement in the messages that we should get um, is important. So finally, when we get through the boredom, when we wake up and when we see the floating officials, we then have to deal with the legacy of Mr. Hu, Hu Jintao, my hero. Is this being recorded? Mr. Hu Jintao, my hero. <coughs> Hu Jintao is a fascinating man. Uh, he is uh, the author of one official joke on Wikipedia, so it must be true, uh, in which I think a, um, state, uh, a United States um, senator saw him in 2001 and said to him, gee, Mr. Hu, where did you get your wonderful black hair as you're in your mid-60s? To which he replied, I'll tell you the factory one day. <laughs> that is a Hu joke. <clears throat> no other Hu jokes, I'm afraid. How will we remember the period of Hu Jintao? I mean, how will we look back on it? Um, <laughs> I mean, we know about the incredible levels of control we know that from his personal habits and from his political views, uh, his political attitudes and the way he's constructed his ideology, and ideology is still important in China, right, for the elite, we know that Mr. Hu Jintao uh, would like us to be as bored as those people we just saw in the NPC. When he spoke in 2007, he used an extraordinary language at the party congress that year um, in October about creating an all-round society in a moderately prosperous world towards the year 2020, these kind of things. He speaks in a way which is very dissimilar to politicians in uh, certainly Europe or um, America or here. Um, but we have to look a little bit below the surface. When we wake up, we have to start seeing certain things about his achievements. I think there are two great achievements which we all know since he became party secretary in 2002 and country president in 2003. The first is growth. Of course, China has been an amazing factory of GDP growth over the last decade. And we can see the facts in, you know, the kind of stratospheric facts, uh, an economy four, size, four times bigger than it was before China entered the World Trade Organization in November 2001, December 2001, an extraordinary number of records broken, the world's biggest uh, exporter, the world's second biggest importer, uh, the world's largest holder of foreign exchange reserves from 2006, I think, when it overtook Japan, and, of course, the greatest of these statistics um, when it overtook Japan as the world's second biggest economy in gross terms in 2010. So, as a factory of growth, this has been an unparalleled success. You can quantify it, you can feel it, you can touch it, you can even smell it from the extraordinary pollution that's come from uh, these growth statistics on the um, environment. He has also uh, created political consensus until recently, and we can talk about that in a second. Uh, after all, the Communist Party of China, as many here well know, has been uh, addicted in the past to pretty deep divisions, and maintaining unity is not an easy thing. In a period in which there could have been deep divisions over strategic choices by the political elite, the one thing we can say about Hu Jintao has he, is he has been the core of a non-ego-led non leadership. 
in which he has been able to create a kind of collective leadership, in which that's, that's, the, word, that, that's the sort of term that's actually used in um, official party documents, collective leadership. Um, he has never been called in official party documents the core of the fourth generation leader. I mean, that's what we say about him outside, but he has been able to kind of carry people forward um, very kind of consensually um, and been able to basically create a sense of political consensus over the need to maintain uh, growth as a priority and carry other things with it. That is a big gamble, though. We don't think of Hu Jintao as a political gambler, but I would argue when you look at the two great, uh, you know, kind of not um, the great failures of the last decade, in fact, he is a gamble, and it's the biggest gamble ever made in history. The two great failures of the Hu period are inequality, and we all see that in the incredible um, amounts of um, wealth that have been created, but also those who have been left behind. National People's Congress last year said that there were 150 million people living in relative poverty. I think that's below 1.5 US dollars a day. Um, maybe 24 million people, according to the World Bank, in, I think, 2009, living uh, malnourished. Um, and yet, a country in which, according to Forbes, um, in March this year, there were um, 192-dollar billionaires. Um, and so, <laughs> an extraordinary kind of, uh, you know, sort of diversity uh, in... Uh, in wealth levels, uh, and this has created a great deal of contention in society. And we see these in rising numbers of petitions to the central and some local governments, and also uh, in uh, social protest, which I can speak a little bit about in a minute. The final great failure, uh, the second great failure, is addressing political reform. So, at a meeting in 2005, quite early on, when Jiabao, his premier, and Hu Jintao, and the Politburo then said in a plenary session, in fact, to the Central Committee, that they would look to the world beyond GDP growth. Uh, they would look to other indicators of, I mean, healthcare, of well-being. They would try and quantify these. Um, they would try and deal with more equity in society, more equitable, equi equitable and uh, more efficient ways of dealing uh, with contention in society. Uh, but that has been a, a mission that they have not wanted to really take forward a great document in 2007 by uh, three um, officials from the party school, which is the Communist Party's official think tank, a book called Bombarding the Barricades, um, set out a blueprint for political reform, a thing that didn't actually attack the privileged position of the Communist Party of China in society and in the political realm in contemporary China, but did address these issues of efficiency, of dealing with contention in ways which were not expensive. And after all, the National People's Congress last year uh, it was admitted that China spends, at least in according to official figures, uh, more on uh, internal security than on uh, national defence. I think 111 billion US dollars on internal security and 5 billion less on defence. So the costs of policing and dealing and managing with this contention are high, and that must hurt for an efficiency-led technocratic leadership which is in place at the moment. So what's the gamble? Well, the gamble is pretty simple. Hu Jintao, the great control freak, is in many ways, uh, has given his legacy to his successors. Uh, he cannot control that, I guess no historic figure can, but the issue is that his gamble is that, political, that economic growth will mean that China will be able to face the much harder issues of political reform and of dealing with inequality, which have obviously not been addressed during his period. So, Basically, the big strategy is to learn from the USSR and their failure and to put the economy before all else and hoping in that sequencing that you can manage the future tough challenges that are going to happen because you are wealthy. Well, political consensus, as I said, is something that who has been strong about, but obviously we know how it can go badly wrong and the costs of it. This is the story of the man who died for love of money. Mr. Hayward, the British businessman, uh, was involved in the extraordinary story of the fall of Bo Xilai. And here are uh, various photos. In fact, one of them I've rather meaningfully cut Mr. Bo's head off. He is standing behind the man in the wheelchair, um, Deng Pufang, who is the son of Deng, Xiao, Deng Xiaoping, uh, at this year's National People's Congress. It was at this National People's Congress in which Mr. Bo Xilai, uh, a former Politburo member, former Minister of Trade, former Party Secretary of Liaoning, uh, and at that time Party Secretary of Chongqing, um, was 
well, about to be felled. He was felled a couple of days after the Congress. We have speculated endlessly about why Mr. Bouat fell. There were many things that were very attractive about him. He was a good communicator. He was a politician like we have in the West. He tried to reach people's emotions and talk to them in a way which was different to the rather stolid, uh, kind of difficult, clunky language of Mr. Hu Jintao. He was someone who seemed to be lobbying for elevation into the Standing Committee of the Politburo, which is currently nine strong, and he was doing it in a way which was unusual. He was also able to undertake interesting campaigns which were followed outside of China in the Chongqing uh, municipality where he was a party boss, including a pretty brutal crackdown on mafia and all sorts of social campaigns about housing and more social equity uh, and these were regarded as being highly populist. But everything we've been told about Mr. Bo since March, when he disappeared, and he may well have already been tried uh, yesterday or today, we don't know, um, or it's going to happen in the future, uh, all that we have been told about him since then has been uh, pretty negative. His wife, Gu Kai Lai, uh, was indicted and then proved guilty uh, in Wuhan, a court in August for the murder of Mr. Neil Haywood um, in slightly confusing circumstances, uh, but these were enough for the day-long trial in which she was then uh, given a suspended death sentence. He himself has been accused of an amazing menu of uh, sins, and I guess you can interpret these photos of the first with him looking rather um, gloomy, uh, remembering what he's missing out on, because according to that list, God, God he was having fun. Uh, and maybe this is a fond memory of how much fun he was having down below. But now he is, um, he's disappeared. And this shows, I suppose, that beneath the unity, in fact, and we never expected this kind of transition to happen in such a dramatic, uh, theatrical way, there are certain systemic ways in which uh, the Communist Party exercises power which don't change. And that's a pity. In fact, when Jabal, the Premier, when he talked about the treatment of Boer, said <coughs> that uh, it would be done according to the rule of law, uh, that he would be treated in a way in which showed uh, due process for the rule of law. Uh, but that doesn't seem to have been the case. Politics, not legality, has really been put in control as it was during the Cultural Revolution in the 60s. When we ask a particular question about power structures in contemporary China, we have to keep on coming back to this question of why do they have a Politburo? Why do they have these structures which they borrowed from the Soviet Union in the middle of the 20th century? After all, the structure of the Chinese economy then was rather different to the structure of the Chinese economy now, uh, and also China's geopolitical position then was very different to its position now. When we look at these men, all men, uh, in the standing committee, the current standing committee of the Politburo, and they will be there, one assumes, till next month, you can see a number of different stories. It's the case, as I said, of Tarkovsky, where you first of all look and you're interested, you then get bored, and then certain things start happening. You look at these men, and I think you see three things. First of all, you see, I guess, the way that the party articulates its sense of where the key power, um, you know, sort of energies are in contemporary society. These people are here for very specific reasons currently. They're here because of policy reasons. Each of them represents a certain defined policy area. And that has been the story of an institutionalization of the party over the last 30 years as it has recovered from the trauma of the period of Maoist charismatic leadership which achieved certain political objectives very brutally but effectively, but obviously wasn't sustainable uh, as China aspired to become a more industrialized and more successful economically country. So you see policy areas articulated in these particular three people, and those have grown organically. Uh, you see things like the propaganda portfolio under the kind of current number five, and you get the party discipline under the current number eight, and you know, we, we could go through these lists like criminologists, but I mean, they have a rational function. The second thing is you see a balance between forces which are important. The party, obviously, <laughs> has to represent itself in its most important body. Uh, you can see security services, you can see state-owned enterprises represented here, figures like uh, the number nine, Zhou uh, Yongkang, who was from um, the state energy um, companies before becoming 
uh, coming back to the Politburo, coming into the Politburo um, in 2007. So you can see a kind of balance between these different forces. <coughs> but the thing that we have to look at here, I think, uh, more interestingly, and the thing that is not so visible, is you also see uh, the stories of individuals. This seems to be a very counterintuitive thing. It's about building institutions. The Communist Party of China is trying to run away from a world of person-driven politics, from a world of diktats of particular powerful godfathers. But yet, each of these people sits at the centre of a rich social network, uh, and that they are therefore there because the network that supports and enables them, and which they therefore enable and support, is important. It is absolutely critical for the structure of what is, after all, a pretty small political elite. The important thing, therefore, about each of these figures is that they bring networks with them. People talk about factions, but I think that's rather uh, kind of, you know, simplistic, not simplistic, but it probably simplifies things. Networks is messier, but I think it probably describes the world that we are looking at when we look at these people. We think of provincial networks. We think of the paths that these people have been through as they have continued their very particular political careers in the context of contemporary China. We think of the places in which they have exercised power in terms of ministries. We also think of the families around them. And right at the heart of it, we think of their closest links, the people who are linked to them as sons or daughters or wives. This is obviously a tough world to look into, and Bloomberg, when it did, a very interrogative uh, article about Xi Jinping's particular networks uh, was not thanked in Beijing, uh, but I think in fact they were onto something. If they hadn't been onto something, why would they have been shut down? <coughs> when we look at the current uh, likely, when we look at the likely future leadership, this is the story of whether, I put ten figures up there because my maths is no good, but um, we assume that, uh, I mean there are three figures that everyone talks about. The current Politburo Standing Committee is nine, uh, people have talked a lot about it being reduced to seven. Um, some people speculated earlier on in happier days that it may even be increased to 11. Obviously, it is an extraordinary thing to run such a complicated political economy and such complicated geopolitics with such a small elite. And it therefore seems strange that it would shrink, shrink from nine to seven. When we look at these figures uh, here, at the centre of them, of course, Mr. Xi Jinping on uh, the left um, and Mr. Li Keqiang sorry, on the right, on your right, um, Xi Jinping, um, no, Xi Jinping on your left and Li Keqiang on your right in the centre. Anyway, the guys in the centre, um, I think most people are pretty certain that these will be the replacements for Hu Jintao and uh, Wen Jiabao respectively. And it would be very disruptive if they weren't. It would be quite a shock, I think, to everyone and I think when we look at the transition to some of the figures around them that might happen in the Party Congress, the 18th, which will be held from the 8th of November onwards um, in Beijing, we have to look at, I suppose, three things. We have to look at the process by which this will happen, and that is quite mysterious. Um, in theory, I suppose, the Central Committee, when it is, re when it is elected by the Congress, will then, I, I guess, elect a Politburo and also elect a Standing Committee, but it seems very strange to think that there could be any lack, any sort of uncertainty um, about what the outcomes of this could be, that it could, for instance, um, give the most number of votes to a figure who isn't Xi Jinping or Li Keqiang for the two top slots. And so there, there's a big question, really, about the process by which this is done, uh, because in the past it was done in slightly different ways. And although party officials talk about uh, precedent, this is really a kind of mystery, how on earth is this process going to be done uh, in ways which will acquire legitimacy and give this new leadership legitimacy? We also have to, sec the second thing I think we have to look at is the stories that we get from these particular figures. What do we know about them? Well, when we go around this sort of particular group of figures, I suppose we see one very striking thing, well, we see two striking things. The first is um, that the era of technocrats is obviously coming to an end, and we are therefore seeing a period in what you could say is the return of the politicians. These figures come from backgrounds, uh, academic backgrounds, uh, which are relatively diverse. The current leadership is mostly engineers. I mean, even Xi Jinping's first degree is in engineering um, with one lawyer, Li Keqiang. 
but this leadership, uh, if it's any one of these people, um, will be more dominated by uh, political scientists, social scientists, economists. The technocrats are going. The second thing I suppose we see is, well, what networks do they bring? What is the rational basis for them being given these extraordinary positions? After all, it's a big deal. To be a member of the standing committee of the Politburo in contemporary China is to join the management board of a multi-trillion company. It is an extraordinary thing. You have a lot of power, all the more so because you can be very secretive about it. The extraordinary thing is that also it's not exactly where you look where you see that power exercised. These people individually will probably make sure that they don't have enormous bank accounts. But what about the networks around them? Which networks are they bringing up with them? When we look at the figure of Xi Jinping, we see an incredible richness of networks. Someone who has exercised uh, governance at all levels, or responsibility, power, at almost all levels of governance in contemporary China, from, well, the village, basically, uh, in Hebei in the early 1980s, upwards, right to the top. We see a man who was, for many years, in Fujian province, a rich, powerful province, and then uh, in Zhejiang province, and then in Shanghai, where I met him in 2007. I'm sure he remembers. We spent a very pleasurable two minutes talking uh, about... Well, we didn't even spend two minutes talking, actually. We shook hands. <coughs> but basically, he has an incredible group of networks from his provincial background, but he also, of course, has an incredible network from his personal background um, as the son of Xi Jongshun, who had been one of the great previous leaders, the party secretary of Guang, uh, Guangdong province during the early part of the reforms uh, in the late 1970s and early 1980s. He also has networks because he was uh, the secretary of Geng Biao, a military leader in the early 1980s before rather mysteriously deciding to pursue a different kind of career on the civil side. That's a pretty unique link with the military um, uh, in this leadership, this possible future leadership. And so I think if we look at networks, we can see a kind of certain rational basis for why he would be uh, chosen as the successor to Hu Jintao. Li Keqiang is a slightly different kind of background, more people describe it as a grassroots background. But interestingly, uh, I mean, he will be the first lawyer of modern Chinese history to have such a senior position. The others also have, I think, pretty distinctive networks around them. Finally, on their provincial backgrounds, I suppose we have to you know, kind of say that some of them have been pretty boldly reformist uh, in the provinces in which they have been uh, in charge, uh, particularly Liu Chao, the one right at the bottom with the Chinese flag behind him. Uh, I mean, in Jiangsu province, he was um, particularly uh, interested in extending township elections in the early 2000s um, and has currently been the head of the organization department, Wang Yang, right at the top, smiling broadly. Um, he's also done some interesting things in Guangdong province while he's been party secretary there. And so it's an interesting thing to think whether this leadership change will translate a little bit into uh, more liberal thinking on political issues. Where have these people come from? As I say, we're looking at people. Yeah, they're not just uh, institutions or representative of institutions. They have a backstory. Well, people like to say, like Cheng Li at the Brookings Institute, that the era of the Cultural Revolution is over. New leaders don't remember that period. But I wonder, all of the people in the previous slide would have a memory of that period. They would be at least in their late 40s um, upwards. And certainly Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang would have memories of this period, a period which I think has left a big memory stain uh, and which is something that they are almost always trying to flee from. The figure, in fact, in the large photo... Um, on the right, on your right, um, is, I believe, Bo Yibo, um, I think. Um, uh, anyway, that's Bo Xilai's um, father. Um, so, I mean, this is something that is very deep in their genes, the uh, you know, kind of memory uh, of this very disruptive uh, period, which has been described in some uh, literature, even some current accounts, the Cultural Revolution of 1966, as a period of the chaos of mass democracy. What sort of instincts will they have to maybe revisit some of the charismatic-led politics of this period. Um, is this going to be an inhibitor? Would it mean that they, like Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, will be slightly haunted by the disruption um, of this period? And they have taken the journey of every other Chinese of their generation in going from these to this. 
to a period of brash uber-modernity in which society has grown richer, in which society has grown uh, much more prosperous, uh, much more divided, in which class structures have become immeasurably more complicated, in which the very questions of the identity of the country which they are uh, going to lead are, are constantly, every day, every minute of the day, every second of every minute, questioned, changed, reformulated by a barrage of different kinds of forces, some of them economic, some of them just in the very geography of the countryside, uh, of the country, some of them in the extraordinary explosion of Weibo and social media. <laughs> For the new leadership, therefore, there are three great issues. Chinese leaders like to talk in terms of, you know, the two great thises, the three great thats. Xi Jinping will probably talk in the future about the one great handshake with me. Um, but we're going to talk about the three great issues that I think they're going to have to deal with, and probably sooner rather than later. In the last 10 years, society, at least visibly, uh, has become much more contentious. Classes from urban middle classes to entrepreneurs to farmers to migrant laborers, of whom there might be, I think, 231 million uh, kind of going around the country, um, are clashing with each other. They're also clashing with themselves. Yu Keping, who I believe spoke here last, uh, earlier this year from the Central Compilation Bureau of the uh, Central Committee, talks of intra-elite clashes too. The elite, after all, aren't even signed up on one particular issue. Hu Jintao has managed by an amazing political sleight of hand to make it seem like they're um, very much led by consensus, but in fact we can see all sorts of signs of division. These images, one of them from the Wukan uprising uh, only last year, um, and others from social protests about land grab, about pension rights, about issues in which courts are unable to deal with the feelings of grievance and of anger within groups in society. When Jiabao talked consistently, uh, certainly since 2010, about the need to create a society based on the rule of law, but as I think Liang Heng, a um, an academic based in Beijing, I think it's a pen name, he talked of this being policy by rhetoric. What does it mean? Where do we actually see power held accountable to, uh, forces, to forces of law above it? Are we ever going to see that moment in which the party is held accountable to uh, you know, kind of legality rather than um, simply being able to create things by itself? The second thing is social cohesion. Well, we belong to one society, right? We are the leaders of one society, but we have to deal with very different groups. I've referred to them, but I think most people agree that farmers, despite the fact that many of the taxes have been lifted from them um, in the last few years, are a source of great grievance because of the uses of their land by local governments as massive raises of revenue at a period in which uh, the government uh, locally, in any case, has experienced a crunch and may well have more debt than we ever thought. Uh, we have a period in which there is, as I said earlier on, uh, incredible wealth, but also a, a great deal of those who have lost out of the continuing reform and opening up process. But really at the heart of this, the most difficult thing at all, of all, the black box right at the centre of this extraordinary series of reforms the party will have to think about is reform of itself. The Communist Party of China is a formidable foe but in many ways it is also its own worst enemy. Uh, its clunky ways in which it creates consensus are just not flexible enough in a period in which the demands of those publics that I've shown with their different class interests, their different economic interests, um, are obviously becoming uh, more and more assertive. And therefore we see the party having to think deeply about how it conducts its own business. And this leadership transition is part of that story. If it's screwed up, then the governance issues are screwed up. It has to get through this with some kind of legitimacy. And therefore, the recent events around Bo Xilai and others, while they've been great theatre, are also very disturbing because, in fact, it really hasn't been able to deal with them particularly harmoniously. About a year ago, um, I was part of a delegation that went to the party school in Beijing and we saw one of the men that will be talked, uh, was talked about uh, uh, and his picture was earlier, Liu Yunshan, who probably you might uh, be put in charge of propaganda um, in the Standing Committee of the Politburo. Um, he made a comment uh, while we met him in the Great Hall, uh, one of the meeting rooms in the Great Hall of the People last June, 
um, of, well, where was the party now? And he said something that um, struck me at the time and has come back to me ever since. Um, and in fact, it's something that I'll finish on today. You don't look like that photo of the NPC earlier. Maybe. I can see one still awake. Um, he said, what is the most extraordinary thing in the last 33 years as China has gone along this post of reform, along this path of reform, along this adventure of reform with all of the risks and all of the kinds of you know, incredible achievements that it has you know, obviously managed to do, um, is that there have been two kinds of changes. There are the physical changes, the changes we see in the geography of China and the ways in which places uh, change so much so that you can go back to them only a year or so after you've originally been to them. They look completely different. And in fact, every day since 1979, there has been change. Every day there has been change in the physical world. But he also said something uh, you wouldn't expect a Politburo member to say. He said, but there are the changes that you can't see the changes in people's hearts, in what they want, in their aspirations, in the fact that they also emotionally uh, have changed massively. What is the greatest achievement um, of the party is to bring this society from the catastrophe of the Cultural Revolution and the levels of degradation that it led many of its elites and some of its sub-elites and other communities to to a place in which many people now have a voice. And I guess we can try to listen to them. But perhaps the most extraordinary thing that the party now has to do is the thing that Mr. Hu Jintao hasn't done. And that is to move beyond making people wealthy to talking to them and appealing to their emotions and their desires. That is an extraordinary difficult thing. And therefore, while I'm sure that Mr. Hu Jintao may not be the world's best joke maker. History may well prove, if he got this gamble right, that he wasn't a bad ruler. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Kerry's going to answer questions. If you'd like to come up to the mic, if you have questions to ask, there's a mic up here. This is being recorded, so please, when you do come up, state your name before you ask the question, if you would be so kind. Please. The floor is yours. <laughs> Professor Hearn. I'll kick it off, although I haven't thought it through. Um, frequent, frequently one sees reference to the different rates of progress of China and India, and indeed commentary from China and commentary from India. Uh, usually it's put as democracy versus top-down control. Uh, could you comment on that, and perhaps on trends in the next few years in China that might liberalize the approach? Um, thank you, thanks, John. Um, I, I think, uh, <clears throat> I mean, the Indian economy is a third the size of the Chinese economy. So, I mean, there's always a slight sort of, um, I wouldn't say disdain, but uh, disinterest uh, when you talk to Ch when I talk to Chinese officials anyway uh, about, you know, will would India be able to do what China's done, and would China find things India's doing, you know, kind of uh, relevant for it? Um, the, the extraordinary thing about the book in 2007 by the people at the party school, uh, Wang Changjian and um, Zhou Tianyong, and I, there was an official actually who also wrote it, um, was it had a kind of very pragmatic roadmap um, of things that the party can look at um, to do non, I mean non-risky kind of reforms that would achieve the things that Hu Jintao talked of in his um, speech at the party congress in 2007. So the speech in 2007 that Hu Jintao gave, I mean, he gave a long list of things that China needed to, the, the government needed to address, public participation decision-making, dealing with inequality, speaking to the people, making more efforts to communicate policy to the people. Um, I mean, these are things that, you know, read well. 
the question is really how. And so in this book, uh, Wang Changjian and his fellow authors say it's not the issue of reform. Every single leader talks of reform, even people like Wu Bangguo, the current second most powerful man in the party, who we know is not a supporter of any kinds of political reform, really. They also feel, um, you know, when they talk about reform, there is this issue of, you know, well, what, what reform? But the more detailed issue is the sequence. You know, do you deal with rule of law and then you move on to other things? Um, and so <clears throat> at the heart of that, and it's something that David uh, Goodman's also talked about a lot, is political capital and political will. Um, these are leaders coming in, the fifth generation leaders who don't have really anything like the political capital of their predecessors. Um, they're going to have to operate uh, in a terrain in which, you know, with limited political capital um, and with a much more complicated society, they are going to have to address potentially much more complicated things. Um, we know from the early 1980s, uh, and again, people here have written a lot about that, the decisions and the arguments about economic reform uh, were pretty bitter sometimes. There were big, big debates for a long time um, into the 1990s, uh, and therefore about something in which you could see a relatively quick outcome, GDP growth, um, there wasn't consensus. It was done um, you know, kind of bit by bit. Uh, political reform will be much harder. Um, so it's not a lack of desire for reform, uh, but as Wang Tiangjian and his co-authors said, how do you do it? in which direction, direction you go, and how do you control the risk. Um, and the debate about that is pretty fierce and is not likely to um, get any less fierce. Thank you. Thank you very much for the lecture. My name is Bei Bei Hu. Uh, I'm originally from China, and I've been brought up here and lived here and studied here for a very long time. So looking at what you have delved into, it's very interesting to me that a lot of the higher up, uh, people that are high up in the political arena have their children studying abroad, having money shipped overseas, whilst leaving the country in huge amounts of debt with their huge gambles on their economic uh, and political agendas with all the infrastructures that are mostly redundant. And uh, do you think, it does appear that way, do you think that China is really just a hollow shell right now and there's not much inside and everything's basically people are just fleeting the boat? This is recorded, right? No, totally disagree. I think it's <laughs> absolutely fine. Um, I mean, the, well, gosh, I mean, the, the, the issue of, um, I mean, Xi Jinping actually quite um, interestingly, his daughter, I think she's 18 now, isn't she? She's, she's at Harvard University. Um, and so if I was giving this talk at Harvard University, I would speak differently um, because she has a different name there. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's quite a sort of sensitive thing. One of the issues really uh, in the last couple of years about him, one of the points of attack maybe by his opponents is why are you having your sort of daughter abroad, Bo Xilai, with his son Bo Gua Gua um, in Britain and then in, also in America. Um, that's also been a very sensitive issue and a point of attack. Um, and I'm sure that there are other people that I've shown you uh, who, who have their children or families abroad. Um, corruption is something that leaders, you know, like Wen Jiabao have said, and I think Hu Jintao have said it's the biggest problem. Um, and yet work which was done earlier this year by one American academic surveying people on their views of corruption in China seems quite tolerant as long as there's growth. Um, there's one card, I guess, that the old leadership, the fourth generation leadership, have left the new generation leadership, and that's growth. And if that goes, then we don't know what will happen. Uh, the party has been able since 1979, maybe even before, but I mean certainly since 1979, to show people that tomorrow is better than today. And I think for these migrant labourers, although they have very tough lives, I mean they really are very aspirational. You can catch that energy when you are in China. When the growth stops, well, what else is there that people can reach for? I mean, that's really, I guess, something that's on the mind of this leadership because they do have to come up with a message that is, as John Maynard Keynes said, about the life beyond GDP. But they're in good company because I guess every other political elite in the rest of the world is trying to come up with the answer to that. I guess, uh, you know, they obviously need an indigenous version of Walt Disney to placate their souls.
uh, David Boffinger. I was intrigued, you said that uh, the fourth generation had all been engineers and the fifth generation were mostly social scientists and economists, is that right? And obvious speculation is that the third generation decided China needs to modernise, we are going to need engineers running the place and so they deliberately promoted these people to be their successors. But the fourth generation has decided that China needs to handle social inequality and needs to restructure the economy and so uh, has promoted people. Is that right? Is that what happened? Or does nobody know? Or is there some other explanation? Hmm. I, I mean, the, the career... I mean, there's, there's lots of work that's been done on the career paths of, you know, sort of the, the people that have ended up as vice minister or above and, uh, you, you know, resources were put in, obviously, to training in, you know, engineering and areas in the past and, therefore, these were sort of a great basis for political careers. Um, the... The, 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 I mean, the, the interesting thing really about um, the new generation leaders, which I think will challenge us when we come to interpret it, is there's no, you know, in terms of their provincial background, we can't talk easily about one particular strong province. I mean, Guang, uh, Guangdong figures a lot in some of their backgrounds, like Wang Qishang, Wang Yang. I mean, you know, so there's one province that sort of figures, but I don't think we've got a Guangdong group. Um, and so it's kind of quite challenging to think what is the common thing amongst them there academic and provincial backgrounds are quite different. Um, what is quite sort of, it seems to me, um, well, politically, a leadership transition should be a great excuse, yeah? I mean, you've got an excuse to do things. And so everyone talks about status quo being the thing that will happen, um, and that there's all sorts of reasons why these new leaders won't make a change. But uh, I kind of wonder whether that's really what's going to happen. Uh, I wonder whether, in fact, they might surprise us. Um, I started with a quote from Wittgenstein, um, Foucault, but I wanted to use a quote from Wittgenstein, and I'm glad you reminded me of this. He said, and it's always good to quote Wittgenstein, I'm sure David agrees, he's always doing it. Um, I went into the room expecting to be surprised, and wasn't, which surprised me. And so I wonder whether, uh, that's a better joke than Hu uh, Jintao's, um, but I mean, I wonder whether um, we will expect these people not to surprise us, and they, they may surprise us. Right, I mean, I think that is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Thanks very much, um, um, Professor Brown. Uh, my name is John Yen. Um, before I came to Australia in 2005, uh, I was actually working in Shanghai as a government policy advisor. Um, I think uh, the, who's going to sit on the uh, fifth generation um, leaders um, panel, uh, the history is going to unfold by itself in about one month's time. So my interest is not quite there. Uh, my interest is actually in the uh, area of the relationship between China and Australia. Uh, as we all know that uh, China is the uh, number one uh, trading partner of Australia now, uh, accounted uh, almost 30% uh, of the trading amount uh, volume. Uh, when it comes to the uh, uh, in direct investment, uh, um, China's uh, direct investment uh, uh, here only account for about um, 3%. Um, however, US and Britain, they account kind of about uh, 20%. So, uh, I can tell you used to be an official in China. I can tell <laughs> from, from, from your excellent statistics that you used yeah, to be an official. Yeah, um, uh, yeah um, I might be wrong, uh, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the, the census over there, uh, given the fact that the back in the March this year that uh, Australian government has blocked the, whole, the uh, uh, China's uh, telco company Huawei from bidding um, national broadband project, and uh, given the fact that in the past few days the U.S. Uh, parliament has uh, stirred water of the Huawei and ZTE uh, investment in U.S. as well, uh, just to uh, um, get your opinion about uh, um, the concerns from both Australia government and the US, are those concerns justified in your view? And how do you forecast that in the future of China-Australia's uh, investment relationship apart from trading? Thanks very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, Huawei apparently spent 200 um, million US dollars a year lobbying in Washington. Uh, and so I guess they're going to want a refund. Um, <laughs> because that's the one thing they probably didn't want as a result of their lobbying to get a Congress report saying clear off. Um, but I think uh, what's unique really about, uh, I've noticed in the last um, 
you know, few, few months, you know, three months being here, is the, the role of state-owned enterprises um, investing in Australia is very distinctive, quite unique, really, to, to other developed countries. Um, I suppose it's a sort of strategic issue. I mean, when you've got falling growth levels in Europe and America, and I mean, here it's okay at the moment, and hopefully it will continue that way, um, you have to choose, you know, well, you want investment, but you can't always dictate. Uh, you have to have kind of policies which are coherent, and at the moment they seem a little bit ambiguous. On the one hand, you say, please give us your, you know, sort of investment, and then key areas, you won't take it. Um, I'm sure that's going to get more difficult as time goes on because obviously Chinese enterprises have a great will, state and non-state, to go out, um, to invest, and they're going to ask these hard questions about inward investment policies more and more. And it's going to be kind of quite difficult sometimes to um, balance what economic benefits you get with these uh, issues about security or uh, strategic assets. My name is Brooke Patterson and I live in Hong Kong. I've lived there for 10 years. Um, I'm here doing an intensive lectures with my Masters in International Tax. Um, I've got a few questions. The first one, I suppose sitting there when you first started talking, I felt quite shocked and I thought, have I turned very Hong Kong or very Chinese? I mean, it's strange like having lots more white people in the room. I'm used to not having that, but um, it, it, um, just the, you know, the way you were willing to speak about China, I thought, you know, that seems kind of a bit of a shock to me. So I was thinking, what has happened the last 10 years that I've been in Hong Kong? Um, so there's something on that, but... Um, uh, my role in Hong Kong, one of my roles is basically to assist capital from China buy up farms in Australia. Now, I, I was at a poetry reading in Glebe a couple of nights ago and someone said, oh, you know, aren't you scared about China buying up Australia? And I thought, well, you know what, they've got 1.3 billion people there. They're concerned about food security. I understand that. Um, and we've, we've got that space. So I suppose my question to you is, do you think I'm being naive thinking that this actually makes a lot of sense? You know, they've just kind of got a long-term view and we've got food and, and I know that there's some major issues there, but as far as... I, I, I think they're doing quite an extraordinary job. So, yeah, a question of my naivety. No, I don't. <laughs> um, but look, I mean, uh, about the, the ways that we, I mean, you know, I, I kind of, um, you know, when you talk about elite Chinese politics, it's, it's difficult because, it's, you know, it's a sort of um, a difficult thing to energise when you've got a group of people who are doing everything they can to be boring. Uh, and uh, as I said, there's a reason for that. And boredom is quite interesting, <laughs> uh, you know, because you kind of think, well, why are they doing this? Um, what it it strikes me is that the current leadership have not communicated a vision of what China is, and that has been counterproductive uh, for outside and inside China. Um, we can hear all these nice excuses about Mr. Hu Jintao doing this because he's a great leader, and in Chinese tradition, a great leader must keep their mouth shut and act in this way. But I mean, Mao Zedong didn't keep his mouth shut, did he? Um, nor did Deng Xiaoping, and nor did Jiang Zemin. I mean, more's the pity. Um, and so, uh, basically, you know, this kind of way that Hu Jintao speaks, I think is very indicative of his political personality. We can only go from what we see. What we see is someone who is very controlling, and that's absolutely fine, but we have to kind of find a way of interpreting that. Um, this leadership have not wanted particularly around him to communicate a message to the world which kind of really has hit home, and that's why China is probably now quite a lonely power. Um, and there's no reason why that need always be the case because there's obviously huge benefits in having a more communicative China, um, more embedded and able to speak more um, coherently to the world. And that I think the new leadership will almost certainly do better. They couldn't do worse than Hu Jintao. Yeah, last one. This is the last one. Sorry. Uh, Thomas Berghaus. I just wanted to reflect on 
the final point you mentioned is both that China that now has a voice compared to the Cultural Revolution. But I'd like to link that to what you mentioned is a very complex society and how we understand that. Of course, the Cultural Revolution was also the epitome of sort of a centralized China to which idea we still speak. China is a centralized notion. So to bring out that uh, one of the clashes, the social cohesion, whether you can reflect a little bit on that in terms of a multicultural, uh, a diverse perspective, because, for example, the comparison with India, we know that we're then talking about religious clashes as well, cultural clashes, cultural diversity, and how India is trying to solve that problem at the same time a centralized government with its people. How would that operate in the future with China? Because I understand that Minzu and all these multicultural mm. aspects of China be also become part of the discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, um, a Ma Rong, yeah? Ma Rong uh, has written about this whole idea. Uh, I think he's at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, I think, um, uh, about this idea of the autonomy law being, you know, why have these five autonomous regions, Tibet, Xinjiang, um, Inner Mongolia, being the biggest of them, uh, when, you know, it seems discriminatory in a way. Uh, you know, what's the sort of political and administrative reason for having this? And I think that's a very valid debate. In a sense, the central leadership has always been caught between having to have this sort of, you know, sort of uh, um, distinctive policy on autonomous regions and yet supporting policies, which, of course, are the same across China. Um, Tibet, uh, at the uprisings in 2008 and then in Xinjiang in 2009 and Inner Mongolia to a lesser extent in 2011, I mean, I think that had a big impact on Hu Jintao because um, he was the party secretary of Tibet during 1989 um, uh, when there was also an uprising there. And he, his treatment of that uh, apparently was the reason why Deng Xiaoping took great note of him because he really did deal with it, you know, kind of pretty... Uh, I suppose they would say effectively he certainly managed to contain the problem. Um, the central government, when they met, the leading, I mean, the, the kind of meetings on Tibet in 2010 and on Xinjiang, what they kind of proposed really was um, to continue with more of the same, really, which was basically uh, to not look at the politics, to not look even at creative ideas about autonomous regions and the legality of those, but to just give lots and lots of money for development. And there's all sorts of issues about to whom that money goes and does it deal with these issues of, uh, you know, ethnic and social and class sort of, you know, kind of a cohesion. Um, what we come back to even in this distinctive policy area is, uh, well, growth will solve it in the end. Um, and I think that this is what's in the hearts of the fourth generation. Uh, this will be their belief in their kind of obituaries, we will say they believed in growth as the solution to everything. And I think Tibet and Xinjiang, in fact, are issues where you could ask lots of questions, and some people, in fact, validly in China do ask questions about, well, is that really going to solve everything? Hello, uh, my name is uh, Garcia, and I'm a postgraduate in media practice. Um, I just, um, I just want, want to ask you a simple question. Do you think it is the time? Actually, the Chinese government is on the verge of being overthrown. <laughs> um, no, I, I haven't prepared the... Um, I haven't prepared the sort of, you know, David and I haven't prepared our, uh, you know, yeah, kind I, of uh, I, I know, forces yet. No, no, I mean, um, it's not, um, I, I don't, you know, I mean, I think there are kind of very quickly, there are three options, really. You could have um, a, a crisis, um, and that has been the historic template, you know, that would completely disrupt everything. And, I mean, that, that could happen. I mean, of course, that could happen. Um, and it would be incredibly destructive for China and for the rest of the world. I mean, you know, it would be a big thing for the world's second biggest economy to be struck by uh, a crisis, uh, which, you know, creates division. And um, the thing is that now China's the second biggest economy in the world. This is not a good thing. Um, and we may be a complacent about the possibility of that happening. I mean, it, it could happen. Um, the second is you would have 
uh, status quo from far longer than, than I believe, but I mean, you could have uh, this situation continuing with the party dominant kind of controlling things in the way it does um, for you know, 10 years, 15 years, it's possible. Um, and the party itself says that it will democratize in Chinese you know, fashion um, in 2040, 2050. I mean, you know, long term, it will do something according to its situation. Um, the third option uh, is, you know, in fact, that we could be surprised and that there could be big bang change. There could be uh, incredible sort of levels of activism amongst this new leadership uh, in ways which we didn't expect and we didn't know and we didn't understand because, to be honest, really we don't know uh, what's in their minds. When they get power uh, from November and when they are given more confidence and more legitimacy um, as the months turn into years, they may do something amazing. They may well, uh, you know, address all these issues I've talked about and I suppose we have to be prepared for that too. After all, in 1978, not many, I don't think any in the West, foresaw the changes that were about to happen. And so, um, well, look, I mean, I said before, um, I come originally from a think tank in Britain, and we are part of the entertainment sector. Um, and therefore, <laughs> you want a prediction, um, here's what's going to happen. Um, in 2035, uh, China will, the People's Republic will, allow open elections. Um, the KMT will fight those elections, um, and in 2040, they will make the greatest political comeback in history and win an election on the mainland. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we're holding his contract to that. Okay, thank you all very much for coming. Um, we have uh, uh, drinks and refreshments for everybody. Please do help yourself. Doors will be opened uh, at the back and the side of this room because it's, as you can probably feel, the hot weather is getting to us. Uh, but please do say, ask questions of the speaker, ask questions of yourself. Very nice to see you. Thank you all very much.